Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit LifePointPB.com. We're going to be in Jeremiah 23 this morning. Jeremiah 23 over in the Old Testament. I believe, unless the Lord says differently, that this will be the final message that we do in this series of the names of God in the Old Testament. Um, there are more that we could do, obviously, and, uh, and the Lord may change things, but I believe that this is the final one. And this, this name of God... And, and the understanding, the, the ramification of it has changed my life. There is no doubt about it has changed the way I view everyone and everything. Most of all, how I view God. And it's changed my perception of how He views me. And so today as we, as we look at this, and of course we're going to incorporate it with the Lord's Supper because it's very appropriate to do so. We're going to look today at the name of God, Jehovah Sidkenu. Jehovah Sidkenu. Now, I have also heard it pronounced by scholars, Sidkenu. And I'm not sure which one is right, because I did research and I heard it pronounced both ways. Those who were very learned said it's Sidkenu, and those who were equally learned said, no, it's Sidkenu. And I don't know that it matters. Um, but what matters is what it means and who God is. Jehovah Sidkenu. The Lord, our righteousness. In Jeremiah, which is where God reveals this name of himself, remember Jehovah is the self-revealing one. And when there's a compound name, it is God revealing in a situation, in a real life situation, he's revealing more of himself and more of his character. Jeremiah is a tough book. As a matter of fact, if you are depressed, I do not recommend reading Jeremiah. All right. Um, Jeremiah is a heavy book. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He's called that. He spends his ministry. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah is a collection of about 20 years of messages and teaching and things that Jeremiah had done there in Judah in the southern kingdom. And in that time, after about 20 years, he had a helper named Barak who came and, and helped him put together and write down all of these in a scroll, all these teachings, all these messages, all these prophecies, everything that Jeremiah had been speaking over 20 years. And so you have uh, this collection in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is called by God to go to Israel and to point out to them that they have broken covenant with God. They agreed to honor Him, to follow Him, to obey Him. They agreed to submit to Him and not go after the idols go after the pursuits of all those nations around them, and yet they broke that. And so Jeremiah is coming to them and saying, you are an adulterous people. He, matter of fact, all the way through the book of Jeremiah, you see him use this analogy over and over again. You're an adulterous people. You've broken, you're, you've broken your covenant vows with God Almighty. And because of that, there are consequences that are coming. There are natural consequences that are coming to you as a nation because you will not repent, because you will not return to the God that you made covenant with. And so most of the people ignore him. 
from the top all the way down. They, they ignore, they don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. But this is most of the book of Jeremiah. However, as much judgment is pronounced in the book of Jeremiah, you also see God's grace. There are some passages in Jeremiah that we quote often, even as New Testament believers, and they give great hope. In Jeremiah in, the, in 30, 31, 32, and there, he talks about there's this day coming where the law will no longer be something that we try to observe because of outward pressure that's applied, but God will take and write his law on our hearts and he will do something within. He will give us a new heart and that new heart will allow us to do what we could never do before. These, this prophecy is in the book of Jeremiah. So there is hope. Even the end of Jeremiah talks about what God is doing and, and, the, and this restoration that's going to take place. And so in, in the midst of all of this judgment that you read in Jeremiah, there's also hope. Jeremiah 23 is another one of those places where Jeremiah is reproving the people and the leaders because they've turned their back on God and because they've gone to idols. Look with me, Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 1. He starts by reproving the leaders. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnants of my flock out of all the... Now, this is a, pro this is a promise. Because in all of Jeremiah, you keep seeing this where he's, he's declaring to them, there is a nation that's going to come from the north and take you into captivity. This is a prediction. It happens in 586. Babylon comes in and Jeremiah, along with the nation of, of Judah, they are taken into captivity. But he says, before all this happens, the Lord makes this promise. Behold, I will attend to you. Oh, verse three, then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. I'll give them good leaders. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, this is King David and his house, the tribe of Judah, I will, ra I will raise up for David a righteous branch. This is a messianic prophecy. In other words, they're prophesying about Jesus coming. I will raise up a branch, he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Verse 6, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. When we talk about Jesus, right? He's already, we've already identified this messianic prophecy. What is he going to be called? The Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu. The Lord, our righteousness. Now, we start talking about righteousness. We get confused. At least I do. Maybe you do. Because when we talk about righteousness and righteousness by, by its very nature or meaning, righteousness means right, that which is right or having been made right. That which is good, that which is redeemed if you will, that which is godly. And he says, there is one that I'm going to write to raise up. His name is going to be 
Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. See, the problem that Israel had, and it's the same problem that you and I have, that we may want to do the right, but we are naturally prone, prone to do wrong. Paul had this problem in Romans. He said in Romans chapter 7, the good that I would, I do not. And the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. He said, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And then the very next chapter says, praise be to God. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This, this work that Jesus does where He takes... See, here's our challenge. Every society has a, a standard by which they declare something to be right or righteous. Every society does. You may not agree with that standard, but every society has a standard like that. And once one standard says, this is right. And another standard said, no, this is right. And so there's argument. No, well, we think our way is right. No, we think our way is right. And then God comes in and says, it doesn't matter about all of these human standards that you set up. I have a standard. The only standard that matters is mine. What is God's standard of righteousness? Do we know? Christ Jesus, absolutely. And by implication, not just by implication, by direct fact, because the Scripture says so, perfection. Perfection. That's His standard of righteousness. You must be perfect. No sin. Absolutely none. Not, not one little bit. Not just a little bit of sin, but way better than everybody else you know. None. Perfect. That's a standard that I can't live up to. It's a standard you can't live That no one, matter of fact, Scripture makes this very clear, there is none righteous. No, not even one. Nobody's righteous. And so, we have this issue, this problem. And what man does to solve this problem is we create our own standard and feel like, okay, God will at least be satisfied with this because we did our best. We tried. And so we set up our standards. Depending on what your background is, you had a standard. You had a standard in your home of what was right and what was wrong. You had a standard in the church background that you grew up. This is right, this is wrong. And it's usually outward things that we can see and measure. Because how do we know if we're measuring up to the standard if we can't see some evidence that we're actually doing it? So we come up with lists of things to do and not do so that we can be righteous. I've, I've said it before, it was a little saying that we had when I grew up in the Baptist church in Southern Baptist. We don't drink, smoke, or chew and go with girls who do. All right? Now, it doesn't matter whether these are biblical things or not. We made them godly. We made them righteous. The Bible doesn't say thou shalt not drink alcohol. Though, growing up, I thought it did because that's what I was taught. It doesn't say that. Jesus turned water, not into grape juice, but into wine. All right? But the Scripture is very clear. It's very cautionary when it comes to alcohol. There's a lot of things it talks about and warnings that it gives, but it doesn't say thou shalt not. But I grew up in a, in a setting that said thou shalt not. That's how you know that you're godly. Somebody else has a glass of wine, they're ungodly. You don't, you're godly. You're righteous, they're unrighteous. You laugh, but we all grow up in settings that do that. Every single one of us. In our homes, in our churches, in our society, in the culture, in the groups that we're part of, we all have a standard. We say, this is right and this is wrong. The problem is, 
that what happens when my standard contradicts Donald's standard over here, all right? And I say this is right, and Donald says, no, it's wrong. And then Donald has something else. He says, no, this is right. And I say, no, that's wrong. Who wins? Who's right and who's wrong? Yeah, see, that's the problem. If it were picking one person over another, that doesn't stand up. So I have to have someone above me and Donald who says this is right and this is wrong. God says perfection. That's my standard. And you can't meet it. See, Israel thought they could meet it. They agreed to the terms of the covenant thinking, yeah, we're going to fulfill all these things and we're going to be good with God. We're going to be right on. But they couldn't do it. They kept breaking it. They kept going astray. They broke their vows. God says you're being unrighteous. But God already had in mind, He knew they were going to do that. He already had in His mind. He had a plan. He had something in store. And He introduces to them here in Jeremiah 23 His his plan. He said, I have one who's coming and He will be your righteousness. He will be Jehovah said Canu, the Lord our righteousness. Now I want to show you six verses this morning from the New Testament. Now these six verses, I could there could have been three or four times as many. I narrowed it down for the sake of time. But I want to show you these. And I also want to show you something else that will help, hopefully. Lee, I'm going to borrow your stand for a minute. And so I'm going to, I don't want to mess you up. I'll just put that there. But I'm going to borrow the stand. Because I think this helps. Um, can you all see the bottom of that stand? Yep. What is that shape called? A tripod, a triangle. It is, from what I'm told, the strongest shape uh, as far as just pure strength and all. If you want to display music on this stand, on this music stand, and that's what you want to do because the music is where the real, that's where the beauty is. That's where the goodness is. That's where the glory is. It's in the music. It's not in the stand. It's in the music. So you want to be able to display that so it can be played and so it can be enjoyed. People can worship. This, this is just an instrument used to display it. If I only had one piece on here without the tripod, what would happen? Which way would it fall? It could fall any direction, right? With, it, with, with just that one piece there? You can sit down, it could fall that way, that way, it could fall in any direction. So that's a problem. That won't work. So me, I'm going to fix that problem. I'm going to put two. Instead of just having one, I'm going to put two on it to try to make it more secure. Will that help? It's still going to fall. Now, I will limit the direction that it falls. And this is what man's righteousness does. We try to help God. And so we put some things on it to try to make it good, make it work the way it's supposed to. And it might limit the fall but it doesn't stop it it just means now instead of falling side to side it'll fall front and back but if i put three on it tripod i think it's very interesting that scripture talks about the trinity as well but when i put three on it i now have a secure base it will sit if i put it down somewhere it will sit it is firm it does not fall i mean i can knock it over obviously but it does not fall it does what it's supposed to do. It is now ready to display all the glory of the music. I want to share with you six verses. Two represented by each leg, if you will. Three truths about righteousness. They are foundational to the Christian church. They are foundational to evangelicalism as we understand it. 
If you do not understand and believe these things, you do not understand the basis of all Christianity. Biblical Christianity. And they're, and they're contained in these verses. Look with me first. <clears throat> in Philippians 3.9. Paul says, I want to be found in Him, in Jesus Christ, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I'm going to show you the next verse and then I'm going to explain them to you. Look at the next verse with me. You can write these down because as I go through these, if you want to look at them, go back later. That was Philippians 3.9. This is Titus 3.5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of our own good deeds, not because of our own righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we have two verses here talking about Paul. First of all, he's saying, I want to be found not in my righteousness, but his. And Paul had some righteousness by worldly standards, by human standards. He lists that for you. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had, he had done many things that the church, that organized religion said was very, very good. He was up there at the top as far as religion was concerned. And Paul said, my righteousness is nothing. I want to be found in His righteousness because mine will not hold up. In Titus, he says, we're not saved. We're not born again. We're not brought into relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not brought into relationship with God apart from His righteousness. Our righteousness will not work. Our good works will not work. This is the first truth about righteousness. You and I must believe we must receive it. If you do not believe and receive this, you are not saved. Okay, let me say that again. If you do not believe this, you are not saved. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care how many churches you attended. I don't care how many times you've been dunked. It does not matter. If you do not believe this truth, you are not saved. And that is none of your good works can save you. None. None of them. None of your good deeds. None of them. This is foundational. It's fundamental. All of Scripture teaches, Old and New Testament alike teach this principle. Here's the second. Because I did not gain righteousness by my own good works, I don't lose righteousness because of my bad works. This one's harder to believe sometimes. Evangelicals will jump on that first one. We're all sinners saved by grace. It's not by works. It's by faith. We believe in Jesus Christ and the good work that He done, who He is and what He did. But this next one is harder sometimes. I don't lose the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ and faith in Him because of my bad works because I didn't gain them by good works. Let me ask you a question. And as I ask this question, don't answer it right away. Some of you are quick. You'll, boop, you'll jump right out with an answer. Some of you are processors. So I want us to answer together. All right? So don't answer until I ask for an answer. Can an unrighteous person do righteous things? Let me say it a different way. Can a person who doesn't know Jesus, who's not in relationship with Jesus, do good things? All right, on three. We'll all answer together. Okay, one, two, three. All right, we're in agreement. Here's another question. Again, don't answer it. We'll answer it together. Do the righteous deeds of an unrighteous person make them righteous? Let me say that a different way. Do the good deeds of the person who doesn't know Jesus make them 
a believer, make them part of the family. Make them saved, if you want to use that term. Make them righteous. Does that happen? One, two, three. No. All right, we're in agreement. <clears throat> Can a righteous person, made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, do unrighteous things? Yes or no? All right. Do the unrighteous things done by a righteous person made righteous by Jesus Christ, does that make them unrighteous? No. We have to grab hold of that. That is the second leg to this tripod. That is the second truth of righteousness that you and I must understand. Number one, it is not by our works of righteousness. None of them. We cannot do enough good works to be righteous in God's sight. Number two, because I didn't do good works to gain righteousness, I don't lose righteousness because of my bad works. By the way, anybody in here since you become a Christian had any bad works? How about today? I mean, we probably can name some today. All right? This is the grace of God. This is why it is good news. Often we give people stuff that's not good news. It is believe in Jesus and then work really hard to try to hang on to it. That's not good news. That's bondage. But there is a third leg here. All right. Um, let's look before I leave it. Let me give you these other two verses uh, that go with the second point. Second Corinthians 521. For our sake, he made him who made who? God, the father made his son, Jesus Christ. By the way, that's who he made the covenant with. He didn't make the covenant with you and made the first covenant he made with Israel. But the new covenant he didn't make with you and me. The new covenant He made with His Son and you and I enter into it by faith. Alright? For our sake, He made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect. He met the standard. He was righteous. He made Him to be sin. He took all sin, all of our sin, and placed it on Him so that in Him, in Jesus, because we believe by faith, we might become the righteousness of God. So I take on all of Jesus' righteousness. I have all that He was all that He is, He now gives to me. And He takes all of my sin and He places it on Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross and put that sin to death. That's what He did. This is the new covenant. This is good news. Look at the next verse with me. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins. It's done. It's a done deal. The righteous for the unrighteous. He was righteous, I was unrighteous. And then because of that, we switch places. He takes on my unrighteousness and I become righteous. Then he pays for it all and he remains righteous. That he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. All right. So we understand the first two points about righteousness. You have to get these are foundational. Number one, you cannot earn it by your good works. And number two, you can't lose it by your bad works. All right. Here's the third one. Look at this next verse with me. Romans 6.13 Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been, bought or have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Because see, often when I preach like this, someone will tell me, Troy, you cannot preach this way because if you tell people they can't lose their salvation, or they don't lose their righteousness when they do bad things, then they'll just go do bad things because they think, why not? I can do whatever I want to. See, here's the third leg. Here's the other part. Here's the other truth about righteousness. 
that when I enter into this righteousness by faith, it does something. It changes something within me. I no longer can live that way. I can't. It's an impossibility. Now, can I do unrighteous things? We've already established that. I can and I do. But I can't live there. I can't be comfortable there. I can't stay there day after day and year after year. Why? Because the Spirit of God resides in me and He deals with that. Look at the next verse with me. Romans 6.19 I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Because we all sin. That's what he's saying. Because, because we're messed up. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, just the way you gave yourself over to do sin, to do the wrong thing, he said, and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, present yourselves, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We talked about Jehovah Makedish last week, the one who sanctifies. He's saying, here's the third part of righteousness. I can't earn it, number one. I can't lose it because of my unrighteousness. But because I have His righteousness in me, I am now constantly presenting myself to Him to do righteousness. If you have the ability to continue to violate God's law, to violate His standard day in and day out without any conviction from the Holy Spirit, without any sense of this is wrong, this is something needs to change or give, then that is a very good evidence that the Holy Spirit does not dwell in you. This is why it's important. Some people say, well, why are there all these lists in the Bible and all these things about, you know, do this, but don't do that, do that? Because these lists, and they're not an exhaustive list, but these lists help you and me understand the mind and heart of God. And what he says that we should and should not be engaged in as followers of Jesus Christ. He has all kinds of things. He talks about the tongue and the way we use our tongue. Here's how you know that God's in you. Here's how you know that he's working. I, I had it this week. Something came out of my mouth and almost immediately. I'm walking away and it was like the, the, the voice within me. And I don't hear voices. But it was that it was it was the it was the prompting of the Holy Spirit within me. Ron Dunn used to say it's louder than an audible voice, and he's right. It is. He said, Troy, what did you say? It's like, Lord, I don't even know. It just kind of came out and it was, I don't want you to say that. That's not the kind of speech that I want to come out of your mouth. Now, if I told you, some of you are sitting there, please tell me what you say. If I told you, some of you would go, how dare you? And some of you go, what's the big deal? Some of you go, what's the big deal? There's nothing wrong with that. Because again, we judge it by man's standard. I don't judge things by man's standard. You don't, as a believer, you don't judge things by man. God judges it by His standard. And His Spirit within me. See, this was the promise that Jeremiah talked about when he said that God would put a new heart in us. He would do a new thing. That He put His Spirit within us. God Himself living in us. And so now I don't have to wonder and guess whether I'm following God's righteousness or not. He'll tell me. He'll point it out. Now my only... The only question left now is will I present myself to Him? Will I agree with Him? 
and say, Lord, I will surrender to that. I won't look around and say, well, you know, everybody else I know does this. So obviously it's okay. Nobody else is not doing it, Lord. Why should I not do it? Righteousness cannot be earned. It is received by faith. It cannot be lost. Once it's received, it cannot be lost by our misbehavior, by our unrighteous deeds, by our bad deeds. But number three, once it has been received, it begins to work in us. He begins to work in us so that we now live in a different way. That is righteousness. That is Jehovah Sidkenu. That's who He is and that's what He does in you and me. When we come and we take the Lord's Supper together, that's what we're celebrating. We are celebrating the fact that we could not earn this and we don't even pretend. You know what this does? Because I realize I can't earn it, it humbles me. I don't think I'm all that because I recognize I'm not. I recognize every one of us are in the same place. We are level at the foot of the cross. None of us able to earn our own salvation. Because I can't lose it, because I didn't pay for it to start with, I didn't earn it to begin with, Jesus did it. It's not based on my righteousness, it's based on His, and His never changes. And so, since I didn't earn it, and I can't lose it, now I have a security. I have a safety. I have a peace. Because I recognize that even when I mess up, and I will, I don't lose it. But then thirdly, this righteousness is a motivating factor to me to live differently. The work of God in me, I don't want to engage, even though sometimes I do still say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or desire the wrong thing, that the Holy Spirit speaks to that. I have people come to me on a fairly regular basis and say, you know, I don't know what to do about this, but it's, something's bothering me. And they start telling me and I smile and I say, that's the Holy Spirit. That's a good sign. Yes, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you. It's bothering you. So respond, present, as Romans says, present yourself to him as instruments of righteousness. And again, remember that even when you do that, you still aren't earning your righteousness. You're simply responding to his. Do you get that? Do you understand that? You even when you present yourself as a believer and do the right thing instead of the wrong thing, you still aren't earning anything. You still didn't earn it. It's his righteousness. You say, well, well, there are rewards and things. Yeah, that's all. There are rewards and all that kind of stuff. That's a little different category and a whole different subject matter. But when it comes to righteousness, which is what we're talking about today, when it comes to us being made new. You don't earn it, not before salvation, not after salvation. You're simply responding to his righteousness in you. Which, again, is humbling. When I start to think I'm all that or I do better than somebody else. If we allow this to have its perfect work in us, we begin to look at people differently. I don't judge them because I realize they're just like me. Sinners, lost and undone without Jesus Christ. I may have come and received him, but if they're not there yet, they're lost without him. If you haven't received him, you're lost without him. It is the only hope. He is the only hope that you have. There is no other hope. There is no other rescue. There is no other way. I preached at a funeral last Sunday afternoon. 
as I share this, I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come up. And I'm also going to ask those who are going to help me serve the Lord's Supper if you'd come up as well. Um, and you can sit along the front anywhere along here, guys, as you come up. I was, I was speaking at this, this memorial and um, the, the person who passed away, I didn't know, but their, their child goes to church here, ch children, a child, grandchildren, asked me to do this. And so I was, I was happy to do that. But the person who passed away it was Mormon, part of the Mormon church. And so most of the folks here last Sunday afternoon were Mormon. Very, very nice, sweet people. Very nice. Very encouraging in many ways. And um, as I was sharing about Christ being the only way, as a matter of fact, my message was very simple. I did not know this man, so I can't speak about him. I did not know him. I never met him, didn't know him. So I'm going to talk to you about someone I do know. And I talked about Jesus. And they agreed with me. You know, afterward, come on, yeah, really appreciate that. And your new teaching on Jesus, appreciate all that. But there was one major question, and so I'm able to have conversation with individual one and say, the question that, that I have is we both agree about Jesus and how special he is. But for me, he's the only way. Is that true for you as well? Do you believe that as well, that he's the only way? And there's a little him hawing there that he's the well, there may be other things along with Jesus. I'm here to tell you this morning. You're not going to like this It's not politically correct, but Jesus is not politically correct. And he's not tolerant. Oh, he's loving and he's gracious. To all who would believe and for those who have not believed. But he is the only way. There is no other. Nothing else will do. No one else will do. There is only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ, the Son. If you're counting on your good works, you're lost. If you're counting on your church attendance, you're lost. If you're counting on how much you've read the Bible or how much you know or how many Bible studies or seminars you've attended. If that's what you're counting on, you're lost. If you're counting on your mom and dad, your grandparents, you come from five generations of Christians, that's wonderful, but you're still lost if that's what you're counting on. Jesus Christ. Him alone. Paul said, this is the one thing that I want. I want to be found in His righteousness. I would not want to stand before God in my own righteousness based on my best day. The best day of living in my own human strength, I would not want to stand before God even in that. I would be doomed. I stand before Him and I am in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate here today. That's why, we, that's why this is a celebration. It's a remembrance that He died and rose again. And because of that, we have life. We have hope. He is Jehovah Tzidkedah, the Lord my righteousness.
And I need no other. Nothing else. Would you bow your heads with me? If you do not know Him today, before we take this, I want to give you that opportunity. If the Holy Spirit is drawing you right now, right where you sit, if you have been trusting anyone or anything else besides Jesus and Him alone, then right now, if the Holy Spirit's drawing you, would you simply acknowledge, Jesus, I've been trusting someone or something else. And right now, I put my trust completely in you and you alone. I am lost and undone. I have no hope apart from you. And I am trusting you. You'd simply tell him, Jesus, I repent of my sin and my sinful way. Doing it my own way. I repent. And I turn to you. And right now I receive by faith you, you, your gift, which is you and your Holy Spirit indwelling me. I receive by faith right now. Based on the promise of His Word, to many as believed Him, to them gave He the power, the authority, the right to be called sons of God, daughters of God. You're His child based on His promise and your response to it. Now as His child, with the power of the Spirit at work in you, would you present yourself? Right now just present yourself and say, Lord, I present myself, my members, as instruments of righteousness for you. From this day forward, I don't live for me, I live for you. By your power, by your work in me, I live for you. If you have believed this morning, if the Spirit has drawn you this morning, I rejoice with you. We rejoice with you. And I want to tell you, you'll mess up, you'll have tough days. This, this, isn't, this isn't a fairy tale. This is real life. But you now will do it with the power of God at work in you because you are His child. Lord, I thank You. I thank You for what You do. I thank You for how You save what You have done. How You have paid for us. I praise you and I thank you. And Lord, right now, we remember you. As we take this, as we take this meal together, we remember you. You are our righteousness. You are our hope. You are the only goodness we have. our Savior. You are our friend. You are the lover of my soul. 
you are worth and worthy of praise. And we give it to you as we do this today. We honor you. We give you praise. We acknowledge that we would not be here today apart from you. And so, Lord, today, thank you. And I would encourage you today as well, as we're praying just in this time of prayer, you're a believer. You were a believer before you walked in here. But you know there are areas of your life where you have not been presenting your members as instruments of righteousness. And the Holy Spirit reminded you of that today. Then would you stop right now by faith and by His work in you and say, Lord, I present my members as instruments of righteousness in this area. What you're bringing to my mind right now, I present myself. I know I don't lose my righteousness because you bought it. But Lord, I know you've called me to present myself to you to walk in righteousness. And so I do that right now. And I have one other prompting. It has been my experience in my own life and in many believers that I have talked to through the years that the great hindrance to our experiencing the fullness of our relationship in Jesus Christ is bitterness and unforgiveness. It may be the number one thing that I have faced both in my own life and in talking with other believers. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff we could talk about and all kinds of sin we could name, but bitterness and unforgiveness ranks way up there. If this morning you walked in here with bitterness and unforgiveness toward anyone, would you present that to the Lord? Would you be willing by the power of His Spirit and by faith to present that to Him this morning and say, Lord, I give you my bitterness. I give you my hurt. I give you my unforgiveness. I give it to you. I have no right to it. I surrender it. I yield it to you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your spirit and how you move and how you speak. I thank you for what you are doing even now in this room. As you draw us and reveal to us more and more of who you are and what you desire to do in us and through us and for us. Lord, I thank you and I praise you. And I pray this in your precious name, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.